Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, hi. You know what? I, I, I First of all, I have figured out something about myself a while ago, years ago, which is that I have a little bit of a predilection for seasonal affective disorder. Uh, and I think I, it seized me over the last 48 hours. I've been in this very dark and gloomy mood. Uh, and I don't want to be that person. <laughs> you know, actually, doing a radio show often does sort of lift me up a little bit. And the other thing is, these days, in this environment in which we find ourselves, if you're in a dark and gloomy mood, there's a lot of raw material. There's a lot of coal, so to speak, to feed that furnace. So you don't want to be in a dark and gloomy mood. Now you want to be more like our first guest on the show today, Ross Garber. Ross is always, in, as far as I can tell, I mean, he's like the happiest impeachment lawyer I ever saw, and everybody likes Ross, which is hard to do, I think, when you are a lawyer who is famous for and legendary for and uh, a person of unequaled experience uh, in the world of impeachment law uh, to get along with everybody from both parties. But, you know, in the words of the, the sitcom that bears his name on Netflix, everybody loves Ross. Uh, so Ross Garber is joining us right now from uh, Louisiana, where he's uh, teaching. You're teaching a course in impeachment law at Tulane? I am indeed. A, uh, uh, and First of all, good afternoon, Colin. Good afternoon. <laughs> Thanks for the intro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, uh, it, it's sort of an intensive course on political investigations and impeachment. Uh, two long classes a week for the next bunch of weeks. Yep. And and so I'm just curious to know what I don't know what the mindset is of your students. Like, why do they want to? T- I assume this is a seminar style course. Why are they gravitating towards it? Uh, well, you may have noticed that there's a fair bit of, uh, <laughs> of of political investigation stuff and impeachment stuff in the news. And, and actually, anecdotally, I've heard that there's an uptick in interest in law schools now. And, and part of that may even be attributable to the fact that people are seeing that, you know, law is is potentially applicable on on sort of these big issues that you know that that sometimes come up comes up rarely but sometimes does, and now we're in one of those times. Right. So it's not all just real estate closings. Yeah, you could do some really uh, other stuff with your law degree, uh, including handle impeachments. So then that's we should say that's something that you have done. You have done this uh, multiple times uh, at the state level. How many times is it now? So actual impeachment proceedings three mm-hmm. uh, in uh, in Connecticut involving uh, our former governor uh, John Rowland, and then in South Carolina uh, involving Mark Sanford, and in Alabama uh, involving Governor Robert Bentley. Um, so uh, and and we should say that in for example, I don't know if it's true in the other two cases in in Connecticut you were kind of more the Ty Cobb than you were the John Dowd, as I recall. In other words, Ty Cobb is officially on the staff of the White House. He is representing the interests of the White House. He is not the personal lawyer of Donald Trump. So, like, John Dowd is the Willie Dow, and you were the Ty Cobb, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, And in fact, that's what I do in every case. And it is, it's very, very different. In fact, uh, for the Alabama impeachment, I was appointed uh, Deputy Attorney General of Alabama, which I don't think I've I've resigned from or, or been fired from. So I, I think I'm still 
the deputy attorney general of Alabama. You probably use the health club there or something. It, you know? I, I don't know, or or yeah, or uh, run for U.S. Senate there. But uh, but yeah, and and it is. It's very different. So yeah, I represent always the office. In, you know, in, the, in these instances, the office of the governor, and it's different. You're a, you're effectively a public servant. So the other day, I'm listening to one of my favorite podcasts, Trumpcast, with Virginia Hefferman, who I, who I also know, and um, and Virginia's introducing this guest, and she hasn't said the name yet, but she starts describing him, and I'm thinking, wow, that sounds almost like it could be Ross Garber, and of course it was you, and so you had a number of interesting things to say. You've also written an op-ed about this in the LA Times, and let's start with the one that I think is probably the most surprising to people, and, and that is, I think people have a mental image here, if they have any mental image at all. It's a mental image of Robert Mueller concludes his investigation, he issues some kind of report, and we all sit down on one day in America, and those of us who are interested, we read that report, kind of a la the Ken Starr report, which I might add was faxed to me page by page yeah, yeah. Uh, at the old WTIC in the Gold Billy. Bill Curry and I were there, and we just would like run to the fax machine during the commercials, and like all this sordid stuff would be. We actually had to replace the fax machine because too much creepy stuff got faxed on it. But you're saying that that's not necessarily the case, and really that the statute that made that possible is not in force anymore either. Yeah, it, well, it definitely isn't in force. And, and so you're right. In the Ken Starr situation, he was an independent counsel. His job, in a way like Mueller's is now, was to investigate and then prosecute offenses. So that that part was the same. But what was different was there was a statute, an independent counsel statute, uh, that Congress passed, that the president signed, uh, and had been in existence for a while, uh, that dictated sort of, you know, what his powers and authority and responsibilities were. And one of the things he was to do is, if he found substantial and credible evidence of impeachable offenses, he was to uh, to uh, send a report of those things to Congress, which he did. Uh, in, uh, in this situation with Mueller, it's actually different. Uh, that independent counsel statute expired. It's void, no longer exists, and Mueller uh, was appointed under regulations of the Department of Justice that do not provide at all for any report to anybody. He's essentially like a regular prosecutor, like a regular U.S. attorney. Well, the person that he reports to, though, nominally would be the attorney general, except the attorney general is now recused. So he reports to Rod Rosenstein. So if anybody gets anything out of Mueller, I assume that goes to Rod Rosenstein. Yeah. So the way, yeah, the way it works is actually under the regulations. Uh, At the end of his investigation, Mueller's required to do a report to the attorney general, as you noted in this situation and it would be rob rosenstein he's required to send him a report and uh under the regulations though that report has to be kept completely confidential unless unless rosenstein in his discretion thinks it would be in the public interest to publish it and to 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 send it out right and so i mean it's it's too much like 
you know, Schrodinger's cat or something for us to sit here trying to figure out because we don't know what's in the report. We have no idea what might or might not motivate motivate Rod Rosenstein, should he still be sitting in that particular office by the time this happens, to either publish it or not. Although one one area of discretion we could look at is is the notion that typically if you don't have the goods and you're not bringing the goods uh, to trial or, or to the form of an indictment, you'd I mean, there are exceptions to this, right? I mean, Frank Maker famously said that he would, I think it was him, uh, said that he could prosecute Woody Allen, but he wasn't going to. You know, and James Comey sort of said he's not going to bring charges against Hillary Clinton, but she's reckless and she's out of control and he's really mad at her. You know, but typically you don't see that. Like, there's a possibility that Rosenstein would get the report and go, well, that was very interesting, but since we're not, you know, going to do anything about the president, I guess I'm not going to really talk about it. Yeah, typically that's how it works. You know, prosecutors are there to do the investigation and then prosecute cases in court. And if that doesn't happen, generally you don't know, you know, what their feelings about the the information is. That's one. Number two is DOJ policy. Is that's Department of Justice policy? Is that's how it's supposed to work? Um, and then three, Rosenstein is as folks might remember, was actually very critical of Comey for the way he handled things. I think he called it a textbook example of what you don't do. Prosecutors and investigators don't make statements in the public about the case. They prosecute the case in court. Right. And so uh, then the next set of questions, and this one I feel is sort of Talmudic in nature in the sense, you know, the old joke is if you get three rabbis together, you got four opinions. Well, yeah, it's, well I'm the right guy for that. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it seems... I might give you five. Just okay. It seems as though in the area of can a president be indicted by somebody like Robert Mueller? Uh, and and if he can't be indicted, uh, what what are the basic gro- grounds for impeachment? You'd feel like that would be settled. All those things would be really settled at, at the level of, of nuance, but they seem not to be settled at all. Yeah, no, that that is true. Uh, and, and, you know, here's sort of the way it breaks down in terms of charging a president. No president's ever been charged with a crime, mm. ever. Uh, so that's, that's first of all. But that doesn't mean a president couldn't be charged well, with a no. crime. But, you know, we sort of look at history, and, uh, you know, certainly we've had presidents who've done some, some things that, you know, may have crossed the line, but none of them have been charged. So I think it's worth pointing that out. But, but two and more, probably more important is the Department of Justice has said through their Office of Legal Counsel that a sitting president cannot be charged with a crime. And, and again, here's where the difference between Starr and Mueller you know, winds up being important, potentially, is that Mueller is not, not appointed under you know, the statute uh, like Ken Starr was. He is effectively like a regular United States attorney, and he's subject to oversight by Rod Rosenstein at the Department of Justice, and he is governed by DOJ policy. Ken Starr, uh, you know, his staff actually made the argument that because he was appointed under the statute, uh, he wasn't bound by DOJ policy on that, and he could have indicted the president. Um, but that brings me to my, my third point. Even Starr decided not to. Uh, Starr took the position he could have under the law, but it wouldn't have been a smart thing to do. It would have been too disruptive. It wouldn't be wise. And then the better approach is, uh, if anything, impeachment. Send the information to Congress. Let Congress make the decision. 
Right. So that's that's one way of understanding impeachment. I, I've not had the benefit of taking Ross Garber's Tulane course yet. But one way of understanding of impeachment of understanding impeachment is because we either cannot or choose and or would prefer not to treat our president like a common criminal. We have this other way of looking at all these questions. Impeachment is sort of there um, as a lot of things, but in particular as sort of a different choice from a standard kind of indictment or anything. And, and one that is handled at a somewhat political level as opposed to just criminal jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the, then the question becomes, if you're Rod Rosendine, you're sitting there and you're holding this big fat report, and, and it's got a lot in it. But once again, for all kinds of different reasons, you've ultimately decided you know, you're not going to share it with the public. You're not going to call up Phil Bump at the Washington Post and, and pass it to him you know, on the Metro. Um like what how does congress even know what's in that report to know whether they should be thinking in those terms well congress can do an investigation and right now there are committees in congress that are doing investigations congress has the authority to do oversight to do investigations to do impeachment inquiries and so it's up to congress to to find out the facts you know, normally that's how it's supposed to work prosecutors do their thing and congress is in charge of impeachment so in, in in a way, there's almost, if not a firewall between Mueller and Congress, there's no clear um, umbilical cord that would connect Mueller's work, which is standard, as you say, DOJ work, uh, at least on paper, to anything that, I mean, what if Adam Schiff wants to know what's in the Mueller report? Yeah, so they, they, there are two things uh, that could happen. Uh, one is, you know, Rosenstein could have a change of heart and sort of pull a Comey or distinguish his situation from Comey's and just you know, deliver the report to Congress or make a separate report to Congress. Uh, the, he, he, could, he could take it upon himself to potentially do that. I, I think that's unlikely. The second thing is uh, that Congress could subpoena a report. Uh, they could hear that there's a report or understand that a report's been delivered, and they can uh, demand it from the Department of Justice. And then the Department of Justice would have to decide whether to... Uh, produce it or not, and and I think there are some potentially serious separation of powers issues. You know, the notion that Congress is going to have the Department of Justice and executive branch agency do its work for it. You know, third is they can potentially subpoena uh, Mueller to testify. So, I mean, there are lots of ways uh, what Mueller is doing and the information he develops can wind up getting to Congress and even getting into the public, and that that even puts aside leaks. Right. Well, I mean, I just want to go back to Rosenstein, because at the moment, the person with the broad discretionary power, the way that you describe it, is Rosenstein, because, in fact, if Rosenstein decides there's a compelling public interest in us knowing the details of the Mueller report, it seems as though, uh, and that fe- that feels like something that's a judgment call, something that's somewhat subjective. And I, I would imagine that Ty Cobb, who's, the, you know, as we say, the uh, White House lawyer who's handling this stuff for President Trump, when he briefs President Trump, the name Rosenstein probably comes up a lot as the answer to many of President Trump's questions. That's up to Rod Rosenstein to decide. Oh, Rod Rosenstein could get this report and decide to do something mm-hmm. with it. Well, I, in a way, that sort of puts puts Rod Rosenstein in a rather perilous position. I mean, Donald Trump might be very interested in having somebody whose whose behavior he could predict more reliably. It, look, that, that may be true. And it, 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 I'll put an even finer point on it. it. Even an indictment, you know, let's say that Mueller decides that he can indict the president. 
ultimately, under the way the regulations work, Rod Rosenstein can veto uh, that notion, can, can say, no, there won't be an indictment of, of the president. And so, uh, yeah, it, it, it does come down to, to Rosenstein on a lot of these things. And uh, I'm not sure anybody can pr- completely predict what he's going to do. Um, he's a career prosecutor. He's a career public servant. He's served under both Republicans and Democrats. Um, he seems to be well respected by everybody. But in terms of protecting, predicting what he's going to do in this situation, I'm not sure anybody actually knows. I mean, the other thing that Mueller could conceivably do is just indict a hell of a lot of other people, some of them with the last name Trump, uh, some of them married to people with the last name Trump. I mean, he could really, I assume, indict like everybody who was at the Trump Tower meeting. Um, I, he, he could do all of those things and, and, and never say a word about the president, but make life incredibly uncomfortable for the president. And in that situation, when, the, when there are indictments, the indictments are shared publicly. We now suddenly know, why is Jared Kushner getting invited, indicted? Why is Donald Trump Jr. getting indicted, et cetera, et cetera? We'll know exactly why that is. And that sort of does send a message also to Congress. They can read all those indictments and go, oh, well, here's the problem. Yeah, well, I mean, two things. One is he could even go a little further than that. In indictments, there are sometimes what's referred to as unindicted co-conspirators. I know some personally. <laughs> right. We we probably all do. Um, and in, I'm not saying there, were, there are any grounds to consider the president an unindicted co-conspirator in anything. Uh, but, you know, if Rosenstein did, he could potentially identify the president as an unindicted co-conspirator in these indictments and, 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 and lay it all out. Now, the, the one safety valve, I suppose, is that the president can pardon anybody he wants. Mm-hmm. And, and all of this assumes that he doesn't pardon it. everybody, you know, before Mueller actually issues indictments. That would assume he knows who's going to potentially be indicted. Right. Well, if, let's say he pre-pardoned a whole bunch of people. He, let's say he pre-pardons Manafort, Flynn, his son-in-law, his son, all those kinds of people. Would that preclude uh, Mueller issuing the indictments? Because the paper record of the indictments, even if the pardons exist, would be, as I said before, of great interest interest to the American public. Yeah, I, I think you, you could not indict somebody who'd been pardoned and I'd be I'd be shocked if uh, Department of Justice leadership would allow uh, an indictment of somebody who'd been who who had been pardoned. Um, so Ross, um, I think this is now a settled question, but your your uh, explanation to uh, Virginia about this was so immaculate that I'm going to have you go through it again. She asked you at the time whether or not President Trump was likely to talk to or testify to a Robert Mueller, and you explained uh, why, at minimum, that that was a terrible idea, and, and also the ways in which the behavior of Ty Cobb, the White House lawyer, and the behavior of Mr. Dowd, uh, the personal lawyer of Donald Trump, had kind of set up a very lovely way of dealing with this problem. Yeah, so, so right now, I think that's one of the key issues. You know, the president has said he really wants to sit down and be interviewed by, by the special counsel. Um, and, but on the other hand, he's noted that he's going to listen to his lawyers about it. Uh, and the special counsel has said, uh, from what we know, yeah, I really want to hear from the president on this stuff. And so the question is, you know, does that happen? I think it's, I think it's very, very unlikely. Um, one is it is super dangerous for anybody to talk with anybody in law enforcement, 
even if they're not under oath, if you uh, say something that a federal law enforcement official thinks is not the truth, that is a felony. It doesn't matter whether you've uh, you know, been sworn in or not. And so just by sitting down with Mueller, uh, somebody who, you know, let's say, doesn't speak precisely or may be a, you know, a great salesman or may even be a great executive, may tend to you know, exaggerate, that person is, is an incredible peril of a prosecutor or an agent saying, you know what, that's not, what you're doing is not salesmanship, it's not puffery, it's not sort of you know, generalizations. What you're doing is you're lying to me. And that's, that's a, a danger that the president would have. Right. I mean, I think the point that you, you've made in, in a number of contexts is that these people, some of whom you have represented, their career is based on the notion that they can make the best possible case for themselves and a case that will prevail over other opinions. Like, why am I what I am today? Because I told the, the electorate that I'm this, I sold myself to the electorate. I really know how to convey all of my tremendous uh, virtues and advantages uh, so incredibly well that I don't need you, Ross Garber, to help me at all. I can just talk my way out of this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and with some exceptions, I mean, you know, our, our Senator Blumenthal, you know, speaks very, very precisely. But for the most part, <laughs> You know, people who reach that level, you know, Senate, governor, president, uh, they don't get there by measuring their words incredibly carefully. Uh, you know, yeah, often they speak boldly, and, and they're not the type who are going to listen to, you know, weenie lawyers tell them, you know, what to say and what not to say. So, yeah, that, that is a, you know, that is a, that is a danger. And, and look, you know, Mueller could, uh, could potentially subpoena potentially subpoena the president to testify if he doesn't agree to an interview. Um, but no president has ever been commanded by a subpoena to testify at a grand jury. And so that's an open question. He might or might not do that. Um, so I, I think we've got, it, I think we're going to uh, maybe see some interesting things play out there. You know, from what we've heard, the president's personal lawyer is trying to negotiate with Mueller uh, to get answers to written questions. Uh, and we don't know what Mueller's reaction to that is. Probably no. Um, but that's probably the first round. And I, I think what Trump's lawyers would want to have happen. All right. Well, we're going to have to stop uh, now. I should be like Trump and say, actually, I would like to keep uh, Ross Garber on the air for my entire uh, hour today, but my lawyers will not allow that to happen. There you go. Anytime, Colin. <laughs> All right. Ross Garber, uh, so great to talk to you uh, live from uh, uh, Louisiana, where he is. I think it's a good course to be teaching in Louisiana, too. You picked a good state. But uh, Ross Garber, who co-chairs the Government Investigations Department at Shipman and Goodwin, uh, served as lead defense counsel uh, in impeachment proceedings for three different Republican politicians, uh, is one of the leading experts in, in this whole question. And thanks so much for being with us today, Ross. Thanks for having me, Colin. All right. Everybody loves Ross. Uh, not everybody loves Paul Manafort, so it's a nice segue. That's what we'll be talking about in the next segment. And we'll be talking about why North Korea is not cute, no matter how cute you try to make North Korea in the final segment. So in 2016, uh, Donald Trump exploited a very legitimate negativity among Americans about a so-called swamp 
in which sloshed around a whole group of cynical players who were in it for the money and in it for the long haul. And, and you know, in, in one's mental picture of this swamp was a group of shady actors who constituted uh, a different kind of deep state uh, in which the government could be operated uh, by private individuals, operated like an ATM who, whose pin codes were known only to an elite few. You know, and as I say, that was a completely legitimate way of thinking about a problem that we have here in America. The deep irony or paradox, uh, and it's darkly hilarious if you choose for it to be, was that Trump picked as one of his close advisors and for a while his campaign campaign manager, one of the guys who built that exact swamp. He's from right around here, uh, not far from where I'm sitting. Uh, his name is Paul Manafort Jr. Uh, he and his deputy were indicted, indicted by the aforementioned special prosecutor uh, to the Russia investigation on charges including money laundering and failing to register as foreign lobbyists. Now comes a piece from Franklin Four, a uh, national correspondent uh, for The Atlantic and the author of World Without Mind. Uh, his article, uh, which has appeared both under the titles American Hustler uh, and uh, The Plot Against America, uh, appears in the print edition now of The Atlantic. It's been up online uh, for your reading pleasure for a while. And he's coming back to join our show. Welcome back to our our airwaves, sir. Thank you so much. So, um... We sh- I, I don't know where to begin this story, and I, I do want to go back in time with you eventually uh, to uh, to New Britain, uh, where this whole saga begins. But but maybe we should begin in Ukraine, because ultimately, when w- one of the places where Paul, Paul Manafort's life takes a sharp turn is in, in Ukraine. Um, what did he assemble in U- in Ukraine, and then how did he lose it? So Paul Manafort as you suggest, began as a creature of Washington, maybe one of the ultimate creatures of Washington, in that he invented one of the biggest, most successful lobbying and political consulting operations in town. And then in the 2000s, he kind of disappeared from the Washington map and resettled his career in Ukraine, where he became an advisor to oligarchs and ultimately an advisor to the president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, who came from the eastern part of Ukraine and was affiliated with the kind of pro-Russian forces within the country. And so Manafort helped him win the presidency of Ukraine. And Manafort amassed a great deal of power within the country. I have a quote in the piece from Rick Gates, who was one of his deputies, who told a group in Washington, he said, you know, we are so deeply embedded in the Ukrainian state that Paul has a guy in every single ministry in the Ukrainian government, which was awesome for Paul Manafort and extremely lucrative. He made tens of millions of dollars off that, much of which was stashed away in um, bank accounts and tax havens like Cyprus. But then in 2014, there was a revolution in the country that swept away his patron, Viktor Yanukovych. And so suddenly Paul Manafort was a man who had once been powerful, who once had status. Suddenly he had none of those things. He didn't have a client. He'd evacuated Washington and bet everything on Ukraine. And he started to become desperate in a way in which he'd never been before. Uh, The feds started looking into his finances connected to Ukraine. So all the money that he had stashed in these tax havens in Cyprus and the Grenadines, 
suddenly he couldn't bring back to the United States, and so he became desperate for cash. He had to go hunting for new clients, and he really was struggling to find them. And his personal life started to crumble. He'd been having an affair, and he got caught twice. And so he had a bit of a breakdown and got sent to a clinic in Arizona for a month where he was only permitted a 10-minute phone call every day. And so this is the backdrop for Paul Manafort joining the Trump campaign. Here was a guy who was desperate, who'd had a bit of a shady career, and probably knew that he shouldn't be subjected to all the public scrutiny that comes with running a presidential campaign. Yet he'd fallen so hard and so fast that he ignored essentially all the advice that he would have probably given to somebody else in his position, which was to stay far away. Right. So um, there's so much in this article. I mean, it really could be a good HBO miniseries or or something. So much about this and so much about sort of the recent history of America. And one of the things that that you kind of look at is the transformation of the activity known as lobbying in the United States. Right. So at one point, you talk about, um, uh, one, who is it? It's one of the Boggs uh, family. I think. Tommy Boggs. Tommy Boggs, who's like, you know, one of, say, like 100 lobbyists in all of Washington. Um, yeah. and, and then this transformation, it becomes this incredibly uh, uh, lucrative army of thousands. And so many of the other rules are transmuted. And one of the things that is transmuted by this new law firm that features Paul Manafort, and I should say, by this, just in the interest of putting cards on the table that this law firm firm is called Black Manafort Stone and Kelly. The Kelly in it is Peter Kelly, who I regard as a friend and who is also a longtime supporter and board member of this particular public radio station and somebody who cooperated with you to a certain degree uh, for, yeah, for the did. article that you wrote. So, but but like one of the things that this law firm does, and particularly Manafort as the point man for this, is start representing strong men. I mean, strong men from other countries, for want of a, a better collective term. Right. That's exactly right. Right. One of the ways in which they pushed the envelope was that they started representing dictators and guerrilla leaders. And uh, there were a lot. This was the height of the Cold War. And so you had a lot of kind of unsavory characters who were aligned with the United States who needed to improve their image in Washington in order to keep the foreign and the military aid coming. Um, The Reagan administration was under pressure to help turn the something. Um, uh, more palatable to American audiences. And so the firm worked with these goons, these thugs, uh, in a lot of instances, to try to improve their image, both here and sometimes that entailed improving their image here, sometimes entailed improving their image back at home and creating kind of Potemkin elections where they could achieve some patina of democratic legitimacy. And that's something Paul Manafort excelled at. And, and and to Peter Kelly's credit, I think that there was tension within the firm about how far to go in that direction. And um, in, in the way that he tells the story, he was um, he was on the side that was kind of uh, uh, urging restraint. And there were clients that he didn't know that the firm had taken on. And uh, that's that's his view. Well, the, another source of tension within that firm, this legendary firm, I mean, certainly probably, well, probably the most famous Washington law firm of its era, uh, if you were the kind of person who paid attention to such things, was within the firm what Manafort was doing that his partners didn't know about that worked yes. to his financial benefit. And uh, it's sort of a, certainly a rumor that's been around for a long time that, that, that Manafort had his own private arrangements. And probably the most famous of these,
these, well, definitely the most famous of these, and one that you worked to either confirm or deny, is this legendary supposed suitcase containing, I think, $10 million that the Marcos regime thought it was donating to the Ronald Reagan campaign, and which, right. uh, which Paul Manafort allegedly just kept himself and then told them, oh, yeah, of course I gave it to the Reagan campaign. Yeah, uh, it, it's one of sometimes, um, you know, I don't like to report on rumor, but sometimes the rumor becomes so much a powerful part of the narrative that it, it's it's hard to separate out from the narrative. And, and so there's this story that's been retold in memoirs, that's been rehashed in newspaper articles. And the story goes like this, which was that Marcos was so grateful for the help of the Reagan administration that he wanted to return the favor, and so he sent back this gift. He asked Manafort to set, to bring back a suitcase filled with $10 million to Ronald Reagan's 1984 reelection campaign. And Manafort, of course, knew that the Reagan, the Reagan campaign would never accept that kind of contribution from a foreign government. Um, and yet he also knew that the money was just sitting there, and um, so he decided that According to the legend, uh, it was, he decided that he might as well just take it back and keep it for himself, and everybody would be would be happy. Uh, Marcos regime would feel like it would have repaid its favor, and um, and he would have actually been doing a service to his client. Now, like Manafort has denied uh, this the story, but um, when you start to look at some of the circumstantial evidence, and you look at you start to talk to people who would know and who believe it to be true. It really has a, a plausibility. Right. Except maybe, like, how do you fit all that money into one suitcase? But uh, well, uh, yeah, details, no, details. Had, I, believe me, it's one of those details that readers like to weigh in on. And I've, um, <laughs> I've heard from various readers who've told me how the, um, how the geometry of it all could work and how you could, actually, you could actually stash that kind of cash in a suitcase. So. Maybe it, maybe that's that's plausible. Right. Do try this at home, I guess. Yeah. Um, so let yeah. me ask you a couple of things. Um, one of them is certainly in, in recent months when the name Manafort comes up, Donald Trump's reaction is, could you spell that? Manafort, I'm yeah, not yeah. 100% sure I know who you're talking about. So, I mean, do you have a sense of how how much the surfaces of one man rubbed up against the other? I mean, how how hand in glove were they? Well, look, Manafort was the manager of Donald Trump's campaign during the most crucial phase of it. So it was at the primaries when it looked like there was going to be a fight at the convention over his nomination and that the never-Trumpers might actually resist vociferously. Um, there was his management of the convention. And then there was the management of the first stages of the general election campaign where they had to make vital investments and resources. They had to come up with uh, a map and a strategy. And Manafort was the guy who was there. And uh, he and Trump had a pretty close personal relationship during that period. Um, so it's, you know, they, they weren't longtime besties. Uh, 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 and, and the relationship didn't extend for that long a period of time. But for a short and intense and crucial period of time, uh, they were they were they were hand in glove. 
You know, another thing that I just, this is a very speculative question, but you may have some knowledge to go along with the speculation. As we've watched the Trump regime unfold, one of the things that we've noticed is a kind of taste for and fondness for the kind of leader, not the exact leaders, but the kinds of leaders that maybe Paul Manafort did represent back in the day. So you've got your Duterte, who, you know, Trump says he has a great relationship with Duterte. You've got El Sisi, you've got Erdogan, of course, you got sitting on top of the pile, Putin. You know these are, these are all dictators, um, uh, and and certainly um, in, in the case uh, of Putin, you could also draw a, a non dotted line uh, between him and Yanukovych. Um, although uh, Manafort claims that they were enemies before they were friends. Um, so I don't know. When you look at that and you look at Manafort, do you see, I mean, is it is it is one of the reasons Donald Trump knows all these guys and likes them better than he likes Angela Merkel? Uh, does it have anything to do with that relationship? No, but I think it has to do with the fact that Manafort, uh, that, sorry, that Trump is one of those guys, um, <laughs> that Trump, Trump has an ideological affinity for them. I mean, he likes he likes uh, strength. He fetishizes strength. Uh, in that, in in his own dealings here, I mean, he's you know, if a guy, if if one of these uh, foreign characters that you talk about goes to war against, say, free press, well, Donald Trump has called for revising American libel laws and 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 has gone to war with. The, you know, with with fake news and, and, and the lamestream media, so um, I think that there is, um, it's, it, it, and to call it ideological is actually probably giving it too much credit. It's really it's kind of a characterological affinity that he feels with authoritarian figures. Right. Well, I mean, I would buy that, uh, Frank, if it were if he were the kind of person who wanted to have like big, I don't know, big military parades or something. Oh, yeah. No, oh, wait. You would never do that. Right? No. Yeah. So um, last question. One of the things I mean, we don't have time to go through all this in any way. People should read this thing. There's just so much. I mean, it really is kind of a very rewarding uh, read. It reads like part of a Le Carre novel or something. Uh, but at one point you say, that, um, yeah, you say the president bears some likeness to the oligarchs Manafort long served. Uh, and you say, and while the cynicism about government that enabled Trump's rise results from many causes, one of them is the slow transformation of Washington, D.C. into something more like the New Britain, Connecticut of Paul Manafort's youth. Paul Manafort's father, of course, also a political leader, also someone who ran into trouble uh, with the law. Ultimately, I mean, I, I don't know how how strong a connection uh, is are those humble central Connecticut origins to where we are today. Right. Well, so you have to. If you're somebody like Paul Manafort, how do you how do you learn the system? How do you overcome a lot of the moral limits that here? And but as my oop oop oop, I, we might be losing contact with him. Oh, sorry, you hear me? Yeah, uh, um, you, yeah, you're breaking up a little bit. Okay, so Paul Manafort Better. Senior is the type of figure who just his obituary is whitewashed. His career, and so when I went back and I started to look at the morgue for the Hartford Current, I started to uncover all these stories that people didn't want to talk about when they initially talked about Paul Manafort Sr. And that there were all these tales about how he had presided over the corruption of New Britain's police department, and how the police department had worked hand in glove with crime families, and how he had helped build the uh, his family's construction company had 
uh, done work on the, the Bridgeport Highlight Fronton, which was incredibly controversial and bought with Teamster, funded with the Teamster Pension Fund. And the Manafort brothers were uh, accused of having paid kickbacks. And so you look at this mess and you see that his father was at the center of it all and that Paul Jr. was very close to his father. I mean, it's just it's just simple arithmetic to see that he had to learn his behavior somewhere. Or in the words of uh, Tommy Lee Jones uh, in No Country for Old Men, if it's not a mess, it'll do until the mess gets here. Um, <laughs> and, and Franklin Ford, we're going to um, posit at that and just say, first of all, the article is, as I said, immensely readable, whether you read it online or in the current issue of The Atlantic, which is thumping into your mailbox right about now. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. All right. We're going to take a break. And we are going to talk about, uh, when we come back, some of the initial flurry of reactions at the uh, Winter Olympics where certain aspects of the North Korean regime have been regarded as cute, when in fact, they're not. Dire straits. And Papadopoulos pleaded guilty. You gave him quite a dirty job. Now he's talking to Bob. And the dirt on you's about to get... Today, former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort was indicted. George Papadopoulos, who pled guilty to lying to the FBI, has been cooperating with the Mueller investigation. Well, they got caught in a lie. Now the FBI called a mountain basically just destroyed. Betsy Kaplan received a suitcase stuffed with $10 million in Filipino currency for producing this show, and I only got a stuffed toy of the Olympic tiger mascot. Our intern is Julius Brown. Amanda Fish spent last night consoling Adam Rippon. The part of Bill Curry was played by Al Roker. Tomorrow, revisit our show about bastards. And now, back to Colin. All right, so I like the Winter Olympics. I really do. Um, uh, and, and I also see the, the Olympics in general as kind of a vehicle for us getting past some of our, our, our provincial attitudes about our, our, although obviously many of our provincial attitudes are deepened by uh, our rooting interests in, in seeing our own country prevail at the Olympics, but still also you get to see a lot more and learn more about other countries. However, at this current Olympics, it does seem as though so far there's been almost a fetishization of some of the more cute and attractive elements of the North Korean regime. So uh, joining us to talk about that uh, is Chris Deaton, uh, deputy online editor of the Weekly Standard uh, for a piece in this weekend's The Weekly Standard. Uh, he questioned the reaction to uh, Kim Yo-jong, uh, who is the sister of Kim Jong-un, uh, at this weekend's opening ceremony. And, and I would fold into that uh, the 229 super adorable cheerleading squad uh, from, uh, from North Korea as well. So let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, Chris Deaton, welcome to our show. Hey, thanks for having me, Colin. So, um, for some reason, uh, we'll start with, um, with with Kim's sister, uh, who is a North Korean official in her own right. For some reason, the fact, I don't know whether it's the fact that she's attractive or that she was kind of giving Mike Pence the stink eye in one picture, but there was sort of a, a sense of maybe kind of looking past who exactly this person is and kind of, I don't know, kind of getting off on her in some way. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, so a lot of it's superficiality. Uh, I think there has to be a distinct line drawn between some of these Western media analyses, which we're really keying on here when we're talking about this issue, between outlets and reporters who have tried to focus on the 30,000-foot analytical 
angle of how this North Korean charm offensive is working as a matter of politics and as a matter of public opinion. And then the other part of it, which from my interpretation, from what I've read in Reuters, CNN and The Times and elsewhere, and some of these individual reporters, um, the Washington Post had one who tweeted that gif of Kim Yo-jong giving Mike Pence the side eye that were very superficial. And look how, you know, this this woman is really sticking it to the Americans. So when you hear this stuff about the North Korean charm offensive is being effective, which is the premise that we're working with, what we have to bear in mind, I think, is it's working among whom? And nobody has ever made the case that it's actually working among the South Korean people. And it's here where I would point uh, some of your listeners in the direction of one of my colleagues, Ethan Epstein, who writes about Korea extensively and has a very good background on this stuff. He pointed out scientific polling domestically uh, that found that two-thirds of South Koreans don't believe the Olympics changed anything about the North's aggression, that they were split on the announcement of the North-South joint hockey team. And after that hockey announcement, President Moon of South Korea, his approval rating actually went down. So if this charm offensive is not working among the South Korean people, which seems like a crucial component of this, who's it working among? Some experts, sure, but also certainly the media. Right. So I, I read today uh, one of many similar pieces also about this 229 member, uh, all female, all adorable cheering squad. Mm-hmm. Uh, this piece was, I think, in Yahoo Sports. And in the penultimate paragraph, the writer says, getting darker. And then he mentions that like 21 of them had been sent off to prison camps. Right. And, and to me, I mean, first of all, it's all dark. It isn't getting darker. It's it's all dark. And, and it, you right. know, w- irrespective of what impact any of this is having on public opinion or whether it's I mean, we have to start with the fact and I think you and I could agree that in general comparisons to Hitler and to Nazis tend to be overblown, but probably Mm -hmm. not in this case. I mean, North Korea runs a series of prison death camps and torture camps that would be very recognizable and familiar to an SS officer. Absolutely. I mean, this is Because when it comes to analyzing North Korea, we just have to remember the absolute uh, reclusiveness. It's an autarkic country. We have to remember these things that make it so difficult to get widely dispersed and vetted information about the atrocities that are committed routinely in that country. And when you read some of the human rights reports and you are able to get information from defectors and people who have survived, and you look at the people who have been through uh, this torture, these brutalities, to your point, Colin, this is the 1A story. It's not a side note in the middle of a sports story. Oh, by the way, these people and their relatives are all subjects of these heinous crimes against humanity. No, I mean, this is, again, going back to the whole superficial angle of what's going on here. It is the actual point of propaganda. This is it. And to be duped by it uh, is, is quite insulting, I, ha- I have to imagine, to a great many people uh, who have defected from North Korea and the people who understand the atrocities that actually go on there. And it's also just irresponsible among the people who just kind of fall for it without contextualizing it properly because we just shouldn't be duped that easily. It also suggests uh, that Kim Yo-jong and her brother are no dummies, that they probably knew that this was going. <laughs> going to work that, right. that such that, that the way that our antennae are set in America that you know attractiveness and cuteness and flash and smiles and adorability um, can cut through an awful lot of facts pretty quickly. It absolutely can, and, th- and this is where you know I, I pointed out um, that it's kind of my contention that so much of American culture is is consumed by four things: we're bored, 
we're indulgent, we're tribal, and we're unthinking. And I think all of these things just tend to manifest on Twitter in these quick twitch reactions we have sometimes to, oh my goodness, Kim Jong-un's sister, a propagandist for crimes against humanity, just gave Mike Pence some serious side eye. I need to turn that into a gif. Why? I mean, I just, I honest to goodness don't get that compulsion because it just brushes over so many things that are these 1A issues to which everything else about North Korea is subordinated, about the heinous things they have committed, about what they are all about, their bellicosity and their disregard uh, for, for human dignity in, in all its forms. Uh, I just I just don't get the uh, the rush to do that. Um, only about a minute or so left, but you and I are on the same page about that. Is there some way to maintain that particular state of mind and then look to see if in some way there are the seeds of progress and re- reconciliation uh, that may be somewhat embodied in North Korea's participation in this particular way? And, that, and that's where I have to think, Colin, that you would look at, and again, parsing between the way this stuff is playing as a matter of optics and media and how it's playing from the political angle, how it's playing among the people. Um, everything that I have read, everything that I've gathered from reading Ethan's stuff and everybody else who's in the know about this is that the immediate returns on this, the South Korean people haven't been duped. Now, President Moon, obviously, who had much more of an appeasement type of attitude than his opponents in the recent presidential election, was elected president with a plurality, not a majority, which is important to point out, against opponents who were much more hawkish toward North Korea. You do have to take into account that it does seem to kind of work with him, and he did have the photo op uh, with Kim Jong-un's younger sister. So you kind of have to take all of that stuff into account and moving forward, contextualize it and just kind of see the ripple effects from it. And I think that's probably the responsible thing to do from the analytical standpoint. Right. You can't go see The Darkest Hour and cheer for Gary Oldman as Churchill and then, uh, you know, kind of go to the Neville Chamberlain route on this stuff. All right. Thanks so much to you, uh, Chris. Thanks for joining us today. That was Chris Deaton from The Weekly Standard. See, we do put conservative voices on this show. Uh, and, and we like to, by the way, too. We don't do it just to be, you know accommodating or something. Uh, Anyway, uh, we'll be back tomorrow uh, with a different kind of show. It's our Bastard Show, and then we have a special live show in New Haven on Wednesday. If If you're in New Haven on Wednesday, come visit us at Gateway College. But certain things are better left unsaid Cause how can you do the trick with childish rhetoric? How can two tiny men have such big hate? Two, how do you solve a problem like Korea?